Hello, and welcome back to The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we'll discuss the abrupt end to Omar's reign and the selection of his successor. While Omar's own path to leadership was straightforward and generated very little disagreement, Arab sources retelling the history we'll cover today contain many biased and, let's say, emotionally charged narrations. This may remind you of Abu Bakr's selection as the first caliph, and indeed, here too, Sunnah and Shia histories take different positions on what happened and why. Many of the personalities involved in these events become quite influential later on, so I'll take the time to introduce them in some detail now. If you're ever overwhelmed by all these names, remember to visit thecaliphs.com, where you can find a glossary associated with each episode, which lists any important characters we've covered and flushes out some aspects of our story in some detail. You may need it this time around, so get ready to meet a few new VIPs in Episode 8, Quraysh's Finest. By 644, Omar's utopian reign had stretched on for ten bountiful years. The Arabs had managed to best the two empires that previously bordered their world, and they had an authoritative caliph who understood how to command their respect and kept them from fighting amongst themselves. Omar's fairness is so widely praised in Arab histories that it's hard to tell what's accurate and what's exaggerated. There's one story that I found to particularly straddle this boundary between plausible and not, so I'll share it with you. It's about the chief of the Ghassanids, Jubla, who by the early 640s had converted to Islam along with the majority of his confederation. He attended the pilgrimage, the Hajj, in the year 642, and while there tripped when some old nobody stepped on his robe. So he turned around and punched the guy in the eye, and that guy went to the caliph, who led the Hajj every year by the way, and told on him. Omar summoned Chief Jubla and asked him if what the old man had said was true. Jubla does not deny it, and Omar declares that an eye for an eye seems fair in this situation. When Jubla asked, is my eye equal to his, Omar replied, Islam has made both your eyes the same. Jubla asks for a day to think it through, and that night leaves the Hajj with all his tribesmen. They ride into Byzantine territory and stay there as repentant Christians. Clearly, what's being praised in this story is Omar's willingness to stand up for the little guy when he was in the right and not be swayed by considerations of power or standing. Whether or not you believe this telling, it's just one of literally dozens of similar stories about Omar's egalitarian ethos. Anyway, I shouldn't digress so much. We do have plenty to cover today. The story I want to start with also took place on the Hajj, the last one ever led by Omar. In October of 644, while performing the pilgrimage, someone informed him that they'd heard a person saying that if the caliph were to die, they would pledge their allegiance to a so-and-so. Most histories maintain the anonymized format of this telling, while others insist that the anonymous person was Ammar bin Yasir, a prominent early Muslim and fervent Shi'i, whom we will discuss in more detail some other day. So-and-so was, of course, Ali bin Abi Talib. Remember, All it meant to be Shi'i at this early stage of Islam was that you wanted the community's leadership to revert to the hands of the Prophet's clan, starting with Ali bin Abi Talib. 
Let's unpack the significance of what Omar had heard before proceeding any further. Basically, getting everyone's pledge of allegiance was the only way for a caliph to claim legitimacy. That's how Abu Bakr became the first caliph, and he'd basically ensured Omar's rise to power by vouching for him to the people, using all the goodwill he'd accumulated to ensure a stable succession. If people were going to preempt the system by publicly pledging themselves to their own preferences as soon as they heard the caliph's seat was up for grabs, then civil strife couldn't be too far away. Omar was alarmed at this prospect and felt compelled to make a public address on the spot, but decided to wait until he was back in Medina. When he returned, he asked everyone to congregate at the mosque for a special announcement. He began by saying that he had heard of some who'd spoken about taking the matter of his succession into their own hands when the time came, and he warned them that there could only be ruin in disunity. He went on to mention that he had heard some grumbling at the time of Abu Bakr's election that it was a felta, a disorganized affair or a fluke. Surprisingly, he said that he could see the truth in this opinion, but insisted that it was a felta which God had made free of any harm to the community and he went on to praise his predecessor's memory. He gave an account of Abu Bakr's election, stressing that it was the joint discussion of the matter by the virtuous men in attendance that legitimated their pledges of allegiance. Finally, he counseled that pledges offered before any comparable consultation had taken place should be considered invalid, and their makers should be punished. This speech gives us some insight into Omar's thinking when it came to his own succession. Unlike Abu Bakr, he did not have someone whom he thought of as a clear successor, and so he had groomed no one for the role. His worries about internal discord clearly show that he understood how tribal Arab politics still was. He was aware that each clan would try to drum up support for its own candidate, and that they wouldn't shy away from fighting amongst one another for supremacy. His insistence on a consultation to legitimate the offering of pledges indicated how he thought his succession should be decided. Not long after that speech, one morning in early November of 644, while Omar was leading the dawn prayers, he was stabbed six times in the torso. His attacker, an enslaved Persian craftsman named Fairuz, ran away slashing at others in his wake, and when he was finally cornered in the mosque, cut his own wrists and bled to death. The caliph called for Abdurrahman bin Auf, one of the early Muslims, who carried him to the bed, though some accounts report him leading the dawn prayers first at the caliph's orders. A doctor was brought to treat him, but the wounds were too severe to do anything about. Omar was asked by a worried Abdurrahman whether he would appoint his successor. He replied, saying that a better man than him had chosen to do so, and a better man than he had chosen not to, so he had good precedent no matter what he chose. The better men he was alluding to were Abu Bakr and the Prophet respectively. After a while, he asked Abdurrahman to confer with five other early Muslims. The six of them were given three days to confer among themselves and pick someone to succeed the dying caliph. All six were of the Quraysh, and we're going to talk about them in a little more detail now, from the least consequential of them to the most. The two that won't be having much of an impact going forward are Abdurrahman ibn Auf and Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. While Sa'ad was the esteemed conqueror of Persia, winner of the Battle of Qadisiyah and the founder of Kufa, 
Abdul Rahman had stayed in Medina and acted as a counselor to both Abu Bakr and Omar. The more influential pair are Talha bin Ubaidullah and Al-Zubayr bin Awam. I've already mentioned Al-Zubayr as the hero of the siege of Fortress Babylon in Egypt. Other important details about him are that he was married to Abu Bakr's daughter and had a son from her named Abdullah. Abdullah ibn Zubair was the first baby born to the entire Ummah after their hijrah to Medina, so he meant something special to the early Muslims, who some sources say worried they had been cursed by their tribes and saw his birth as a good omen. Talha was an early Muslim whose right arm was paralyzed while he defended the Prophet on the day the Muslims lost the battle at Mount Uhud to Khalid ibn al-Walid's cavalry feign. Most sources agree that he was away on a business trip when this consultation occurred, but some maintain that he was there, claiming his vote one way or another. The final and most important pair of the group are Uthman bin Affan and Ali bin Abi Talib. These two were of the Umayyad and Hashemite clans, respectively Quraysh's aristocracy and the Prophet's clan. We'll be talking about them in a little more detail, as almost all tellings of this event agree that they were the only two real contenders. By the time this consultation was taking place, Ali bin Abi Talib was about 45 years old. He had been looked after by his cousin, the Prophet, since he was a young boy and had fought in all his battles. He was sometimes asked to lead prayers, deliver revelations to the Muslims, or teach Arabs about the new faith. He embraced Islam as the unifying identity of the entire Ummah as opposed to the traditional tribal arrangements of his time, and for this he earned a small following of devoted loyalists, mainly of the underprivileged and the pious. He had married the Prophet's daughter Fatima, and they gave him two grandsons, Hassan and Hussein, both around 20 years old by this point. After Fatima died, Ali began to remarry, but of all his children, you mostly need to remember Hassan and Hussein, the Prophet's grandchildren, and two others, both named Muhammad. Why did he have two Muhammads? Well, one of them was a stepson. After Abu Bakr died, Ali married one of his widows, and together they raised his son, Muhammad bin Abi Bakr, who was only two years at the time of his father's death. The other Muhammad was his son from a woman referred to as the Hanafiya, so he's called Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya, a rare example of a maternal tribal name, used no doubt to make sure nobody confuses this Muhammad for a direct descendant of the original Muhammad. Ali bin Abi Talib's children will become relevant later on, but it's never too early to lay the seed, I suppose. During Omar's reign, Ali acted as a sort of judge in Mecca and Medina, furthering his reputation as a paragon of Islamic virtues. Uthman ibn al-Affan has been mentioned in this podcast as a secretary every now and again, first to the Prophet, then to Abu Bakr, and most recently to Omar. He was a wealthy and well-respected Umayyad, whom the Prophet used as a diplomat when negotiating with the Quraysh, especially during the truce of Hudaybiyyah. While he had no military qualities whatsoever, he did generously finance many of Islam's needs and undertakings. He was twice honored with marriage to the Prophet's daughters, first to Ruqayya before the first pilgrimage to Aksum, which they undertook together, and after her death he wed her sister Umm Kulthum. He and Ruqayya had given the Prophet a grandson who, tragically, died when he was six years old, after being pecked in the eye by a rooster. It should be noted that if the boy had survived into manhood, he would have had the most prestigious tribal ancestry the Quraysh could have produced. 
His mother was a Hashemite daughter of the Prophet himself, and his father a rich, respected Umayyad, who had been a Muslim from the earliest days. He would have been able to claim the allegiance of both of the tribe's noblest clans. Uthman served the Caliphate faithfully under the first two caliphs, but the Umayyads as a clan had a more mixed reputation amongst the Muslims. Some, like Yazid and Muawiyah, the sons of Abi Sufyan, had fought and died for the Caliphate's armies and now governed some of its lands. Yazid had died and Muawiyah now governed, is what I meant. Since Abu Bakr first successfully argued that the leadership of the community should remain within the Quraysh, the Umayyads, as an especially prominent clan within the tribe, could expect their lineage to count for something. But the Umayyads had also been the leadership of the Quraysh back when it was Islam's most vicious opponent, and some of its members were unrepentant, while others converted to Islam but openly lamented the changes the religion had brought. The worst offenders were still banished to the city of Ta'if, and the Ummah refused to have anything to do with them. So, overall, the word Umayyad had connotations of aristocracy to Arab ears, both before Islam and in the early caliphate. Once more, real quick, the council was to be made up of Abdurrahman, Sa'ad, Talha, Al-Zubayr, Uthman, and Ali. Why these six were chosen depends on who you ask. Most sources point to a saying attributed to the Prophet in which he declared that he saw ten of his companions in heaven. These ten were thereafter known as the ten guaranteed paradise. The six Omar chose were all those available from the ten. He, Abu Bakr, and Abu Ubaidah were another three, and the last of the ten was Sa'id bin Zaid, whom Omar chose to disallow on grounds of being related to him. See how serious he was about nepotism? A minority of traditions deny the validity of this story, however, and put forth more conspiratorial theories of Omar trying to game the results, or being secretly beholden to tribal allegiances. Considering that he did have the power to just pick his successor, I think a conspiracy is far-fetched, and while Omar did work to limit the power of Quraysh's aristocracy, he accepted Abu Bakr's original argument that the Quraysh were the ordained leadership of the community. These men may have seemed like the only acceptable candidates to Omar and indeed were the most respected men Quraysh had to offer. He asked them to agree only by consensus and not take longer than three days. He asked his most pious son Abdullah bin Omar to act as a witness and assign someone to lead the prayers while the men conferred. Omar had sometimes resorted to this quasi-democratic style of decision-making during his reign. When it came to certain matters, he would ask for a group discussion to take place. He always insisted on unanimity and would angrily dismiss councils that could not arrive at a unified position. Issues he had left to this sort of process included the selection of Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas as a commander to lead Arab armies in battle against the Sassanids and the decision to forgo his trip to greater Syria during the plague of 638. The dying caliph had one last issue to deal with before meeting his end. One of his sons had been arrested after going on a murder spree. Ubaidallah bin Umar, learning of the assassin's identity and that he was seen conspiring with two other men, had killed them both, then killed Fayruz's wife and young daughter. Both men were originally Sassanid loyalists, one being a Lakhmid chief and the other the ex-shah or governor of Khuzestan, giving us the impression that Ubaidallah bin Omar was on some sort of anti-Sassanian rampage. He was raging through the streets of Medina when Amr ibn al-As talked him down 
and after he dropped his sword, he was seized by Abdurrahman bin Auf and taken to the prison. Omar said to keep him there and that the next caliph should decide his fate. He asked to be buried alongside the Prophet and Abu Bakr and died later that night. While everything I've told you about the third election so far is contested by the various sources, this is the point where Sunni and Shia histories take significantly different self-defining positions, often making the other party look bad in the process. As with the first caliph, I'm going to try to illustrate this tension by presenting an account from the ideological extreme of each of the two traditions. According to some Sunni sources, Abdurrahman bin Auf, worried about the possibility of the council not agreeing on a candidate in time, offered the others to remove his own candidacy for the guarantee that the other men would allow him to arbitrate between their claims to the title of caliph. They all agreed, and he began by asking each man in private whom he would vote for if he couldn't vote for himself. They all said Uthman, and Uthman said Ali. On his way to the mosque to inquire about the positions held by other Muslims, he found the people split into two groups, each of which threatening that they would accept no other caliph than their guy. One group called for Uthman, the other for Ali. Abdurrahman, now alarmed at the possibility of civil strife, asked both Ali and Uthman to come to the mosque. He publicly asked Ali if he would abide by God's book, the Prophet's example, and that of the first two caliphs. Ali replied that he could not promise all that, but he would do his best. Abdurrahman then asked Uthman the same question, and Uthman just said yes. He declared Uthman caliph, and everybody crowded around him offering their pledges of allegiance. Sensing hesitation from Ali, Abdurrahman reminded him that he had promised to abide by his verdict. Ali then offered his pledge, and with him came the support of all of his loyalists. Shia sources view this event very, very differently, and no unified version emerges when reading the different accounts. Some claim that it was Omar who asked the council to abide by Abdurrahman's verdict in the absence of unanimity. Some of those accounts say that Talha, who probably wasn't there, and Zubair both voted for Ali, splitting the council three to three, making Abdurrahman's verdict decisive. Other accounts say that all the other members of the council voted for Uthman because he was a weak old man whom they could hope to manipulate, and that an armed guard left by Omar to ensure unanimity compelled Ali to go along with their scandalous decision. Some accounts mention a slight variation of the story about Abdurrahman asking the two candidates the public questions, and Ali's reply, according to those Shia sources, was that he could promise to abide by God's laws and the Prophet's example, but not to hold himself to the worldly precedent set by the first two caliphs. Uthman, they maintained, just said yes to all. The key difference here is that Ali qualified his reply not due to humility or a lack of self-confidence, but as an admonishment to those who still did not recognize his right to have been caliph all along. So what are we supposed to believe when presented with all these different tellings? The things that a majority of sources from both traditions agree on are a consultation took place, Abdurrahman bin Auf's vote was decisive, and there was a public questioning of Uthman and Ali at the mosque. They do not agree on how any vote was cast except that Abdurrahman eventually picked Uthman and that's who succeeded Omar. The Umayyads were ecstatic and the Hashemites and their loyalists, the Shia of their day, 
had no recourse but to pledge their allegiance when they saw Ali offering his own. There are many details about Uthman's election that I decided to leave out of this episode, either because they're not significant enough or because they seemed unrealistic. This is a good point to share an example of the latter, a conversation narrated by Abdullah ibn Abbas in which he asked the caliph about his opinion on each of the six men of the council. It is highly probable that the story is a fiction attributed to Abdullah ibn Abbas at some later date. I say this for two reasons. The first is that it has Omar saying some pretty harsh things about people he had just selected for their closeness to the Prophet. The second is that the caliph's words are borderline prophetic, and it's always suspicious when someone says something so loaded with hindsight. Still, if you agree that Omar must have had a deep understanding of his people, it's possible that the story may reflect views that weren't all that far from the ones he held personally. Omar began by dismissing Abdurrahman's chances, saying he was too weak for a position that needed a strong and decisive leader. He called Sa'd valiant on horseback, but useless as a commander of anything that wasn't a battle. Talha he described as a vain, prideful man whom God would never allow to rule over his people. Al-Zubair was praised for his bravery, but called a devil for his frequent violent tantrums. I want to note here that the Arab sources, far from being interested in any feminist issues themselves, often go out of their way to describe how infamous Al-Zubair was as a wife-beater. His wives were quick to ask for divorces, and it seems that Abu Bakr's daughter only stayed with him thanks to her father's repeated urging. Omar continued by saying that a council of Qurayshis would not pick Ali as a caliph because the position would never again leave his clan if they did, but was sure to go to his children after him and theirs after them. Finally, he said that Uthman would not be able to resist favoring his own clansmen if he were made caliph, and that the other Arabs would have his head when he treated them unfairly. Let's ignore the rhetorical takedowns of the others and focus on what the caliph supposedly said about Ali bin Abi Talib. While this story does not appear in some of the most authoritative sources, those do contain accounts with the same point being made about Ali. In Al-Tabari's history, Umar is reported to have asked his Hashemite counselor, Abdullah ibn al-Abbas, whether Ali still thought he should be made caliph. When he got the affirmative answer he was expecting, he asked Abdullah whether he knew why Ali would never attain leadership, then went on to explain that all Qurayshi clans wanted to lead the community, and that they understood that once a Hashemite was made caliph, there would be no going back. If you believe that Omar truly understood this, then you can see why some say that he had biased the process of selecting the next caliph against Ali. Ali had shunned the tribal elite his entire life, and his presence on the council could only serve to unify it against his candidacy. I am not the first to note this, and Al-Tabari includes an account narrated by Abdullah ibn al-Abbas, saying he told Ali that agreeing to take part in the council could only harm his chances of ever becoming caliph, but Ali replied that he would hate to split the community by dissenting to take part. Let us not get dragged into the controversy of the third election any further. Uthman became the third caliph to lead the Ummah in November 644, making him 65 at the time. Literally the first thing Uthman had to decide was the fate of Ubaidullah bin Omar. The new caliph chose to pardon him, saying he would pay the required blood money from his own wealth. 
Many objected to this as they saw Ubaidullah's behavior, especially the murder of the assassin's three-year-old daughter, as beyond the pale, and they protested to Uthman that this ruling was religiously unjustifiable. Sources report him responding with the question, and is it just to spill his blood now, when his father's was shed only days ago? I guess it was a tough call either way, but this episode gives us our first example of a time when many in the community, Ali chief among them, found Uthman's judgment to be too deferential to tribal lineage and insufficiently concerned with religious precedent. I don't mean to foreshadow too heavily, but I wanted to end the episode with a different, more symbolic story. Remember how I once mentioned that Abu Bakr, the first man to be called Khalifat Rasulullah, successor to God's Prophet, always sat one step lower on the Prophet's pulpit than Muhammad himself when speaking to the people? Omar is said to have continued this symbolic act, literally taking it one step further by sitting another step down the pulpit. When he was first addressed as Caliph, he was called Khalifat Khalifat Rasulullah, or successor to the successor to God's Prophet. He complained this title was too long, and when Amir al-Mu'mineen was suggested instead, he took a liking to it and used it often. It literally translates as commander of the faithful, which attests to the militaristic nature of Umar's early caliphate. Anyway, when Uthman was made caliph, he is said to have upended both of these symbolic traditions. He sat all the way up where the Prophet used to sit and shortened his title to Khalifatullah, which, as God can't logically have a successor, translates more like God's agent on earth. Arab histories report people saying dramatic things like evil has been born on this day in response to witnessing these shocking changes in the first days of Uthman's caliphate. While I feel certain that this story is a fiction from a later time, one after Uthman's controversial tenure as caliph had come to an end, I have no proof to point to besides the emotional language and symbolic ideas used in the telling. As will become clear over the next few episodes, Uthman's long reign provoked strong reactions. It was intensely praised by some and as intensely reviled by others. Join me next time so we can start getting into it here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. (laughs) 